Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in the beautiful home, as we say, of Belinda Carpenter. And I've not seen Belinda, I was just thinking, for about five or six years, oh, maybe. Oh, yeah, easily that. Yeah, easily. yeah, yeah. And now I'm in New York, where you are on a sabbatical from your academic job, is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Lovely long six months. And what are you doing here in New York? So, Sorry, you're, you're incredibly busy with very, very fucking important yeah, research. Yeah, I am. But, now, I've been travelling around a bit, um, mm-hmm. giving papers, international papers at conferences, and uh, researching, writing. Basically. And what are you working on these days? So, two areas. I'm doing uh, work on sex trafficking, sex crimes, mm. and mm. death investigation. Not together. <laughs> Right. Although sometimes they I imagine they do have that, an overlap. Yeah, well, let's start with sex trafficking. Yeah. Okay. What so, is it? So I guess what I'm interested in is, and I think when I was talking to you about it earlier and you said it's really the idea of sex trafficking, I think mm. that is right. So mm. I'm not doing um, field research, uh, even though we have published some work looking at Congress, debates in Congress in the US and political and parliamentary debates in Australia. But interested in the idea of sex trafficking and what gets counted as sex trafficking Mm, mm -hmm. and how other issues get become become made invisible so we rarely talk about smuggling or sexual migration when we talk about women moving to sell sex Mm. we say it's always sex trafficking now we don't do that so much when men move we are quite happy to see the variety of ways in which men move from illegal migration to smuggling to trafficking Mm. but when women are involved. We seem to want to say it's all trafficking. We want to, you know, victimize. We want to position the women as victims, mm. and then mm. we want to rescue them. Mm. Of course. So that's I guess Traditional what I mean. Alibi for imperialism. Yeah, and feminism. And of course, feminism mm. also needs victims to rescue, mm. not just. And of course, feminism, of course, is mm. part of the problem and part of the solution in all of this. I mean, they have aligned themselves in America, as you would know, with the far Christian right, Mm. and especially around the issue of trafficking. I mean, they've been incredibly vocal in Congress in making sure that not only is prostitution illegal, but any movement around America within borders now, if you're under 18, is trafficking. So ostensibly you could get in a cab (laughs) if you were 17 and travel to the next town to sell sex, and that would be trafficking now under legislation in America. Mm. So there's a huge well, moral panic or cultural paranoia now around mm. women moving to sell sex. And, of course, what that tends to do is it tends to ignore the long history of women travelling to sell sex from, you know, you know, French army. I mean, most armies travelled with sure. women who sold sex and women have always moved to sell sex. Um, I think what's... More worrying, though, is the way the legislation now gets established such that if women won't claim the status of victim, they are usually punished. Mm. And so they're sort of bribed or blackmailed in a way into maintaining a narrative that is, oh, yes, I'm a victim of trafficking, when often they're not, because if they're not, they would be immediately deported, etc. But if they say, oh, no, I'm a victim of trafficking, they're often then used in cases against their trafficker, so it buys them some time to stay in the country where they're currently working. And, of course, it ignores the whole ways in which most women who travel um, to ma- for a better life mm. aren't doing it to sell sex. They're doing it in the nanny industry, in the garment industry, um, in those sorts of areas. So most women actually are not being trafficked for sex or moving mm. to sell sex. But, again, in, in all of the debates in America and in the U.S., and in a, sorry, in Australia, really does that get discussed? So presumably a core component assumed in the term trafficking is that this is done against the will of yes. those involved. Forced coercion and exploitation. Mm. But of course the interesting issue in all of this is when the UN passed their trafficking bill in 2000, they have a general statement which would include, you would think, everything, including prostitution, mm-hmm. sex labour, sex mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. But they, they, have the, they have also written a, se- a final sentence which says including uh, sexual exploitation and the prostitution of others. So they've, they've found it necessary to distinguish out sex trafficking and prostitution from any, any other form of trafficking. And I think that actually goes to the heart of the issue mm. about prostitution and sex trafficking being seen as something different about not selling labour, about selling Mm. the self. So we get back into this big debate about 
you know, when is prostitution forced and when, when is it voluntary? Can prostitution ever be voluntary? Is the you know, so we get into those old radical feminist debates then, and mm. of course that's the debate that is has gained purchase in America that mm. no prostitution can ever be good, that all prostitution is forced, that even when women say they aren't forced, they don't know their own mind, that awful false consciousness mm. idea that comes mm. through some feminist stuff. So so where I'm very interested in sort of challenging that debate, I'm not alone. There's some really good people out there doing great work. I mean, Laura Augustine's um, doing some fantastic work on sexual migration, Joe Duesma, Carla Kemper. I mean, there's some fantastic people out there doing work mm. that I'm just sort of parroting mm. in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'm sure not. And what's the reception you get when you talk about this in these terms? Are people positive, hostile, and how would you relate their responses to their backgrounds? Yeah, it's very interesting because I've, I've been given a few, I've been giving a few um, lectures on this topic only in the last few weeks around England, and um, I would say you get nodding. So in the, you'll, you'll get three responses. You'll get nodding, and, and I get that. And I'm probably going to stereotype a bit, but young women of colour seem to mm-hmm. nod more, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I get antag- incredible antagonism um, that I'm actually wrong. And then normally from white men. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily saying that white men might be the only people who think it, but they're the ones that have the confidence to challenge me. Mm-hmm. You know, that in fact I have got it wrong and, and you know, and even at the end. And they, they're the ones who stay behind as well to enforce the point. Mm. And then I get a lot of positive pseudo-positive, which says, oh, actually, I've never thought of it like that. You've really made me think about the Mm. issue. I'm not really sure whether I agree with you or not, but I have to say I haven't thought about it in that way. Mm. And often Mm. that's – so I've given it law school. Lawyers respond a bit like that. When you give it to lawyers, they're they're more to say, oh, actually, I haven't thought of it like that. And they say, oh, it's given me real food for thought or – Mm-hmm. What I'm amazed about is how many people haven't. It's just, it's not, people don't even understand that people, women would want to move. And I think, you know, people will say, well, how can we stop this? Well, you know, what can we do to help? Mm. And my response is always, well, if prostitution's legal, that mm. would be a good start. And then if you would give the working visas to women, mm. if you wanted to cross, then they wouldn't have to do it illegally. Mm. They wouldn't have to employ smugglers or traffickers to get in. So, of course, we have the situation, of course, in Australia where prostitution is legal. Is it? Yeah. Legal brothel prostitution is legal in every state. There's no issue. But even in the last Congress, in the last parliamentary debates around this topic Mm. in 2006, the government are adamant they will not give visas for women who say, I'm a sex worker, I want to come in and work in a legal brothel. So what we say to women is, well, if you want to come and work in Australia, you won't be allowed to work in illegal brothels because obviously if you don't have a visa... You can get... you can apply for a visa with any other legal job Yes. at the end of it, Yes. but not this. No, and of course the other issue is, of course, which the other um, issue that sits under all of this is geography mm. in a way and the geography of movement and how we create mm. a hierarchy of victims. So we are much more likely, of course, to give visas, working visas to young women from developed countries, mm. from Canada, US, England, any of those young women, if they're student, yeah, if they're under the age of 28, can get a visa for two years to come and work. Now, they may be coming to work as prostitutes or maybe not, who knows, but they nevertheless are given the capacity to make that decision that they are capable of moving to come and work in Australia. We don't allow women from Southeast Asia working visas to come to Australia because I think we we believe they may in fact be, you know, coming to sell sex. And we think that women often only, and that, that's the other insult. I think the other thing about the trafficking debate is it becomes very insulting to women that they would only move if they were forced or coerced, mm. that they don't have the capacity to, in fact, create an idea that they might move for ambition or adventure, you know, or a better life for themselves. And in terms of sex workers themselves, is there any view that's come through from them in any of these countries? We've had a small intervention by the dishwasher. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, well, obviously in Australia, um, there's a, the prostitutes are unionised. So mm. the Scarlet Alliance is the organisation that speaks for for prostitutes in Australia. They have a very uh, strong voice in the parliamentary debates. Of course, they make submissions and they are, um, you know, are speaking to their constituents all the time. I mean, I think. 
um, Scarlet Alliance, I, I think my position would be in, in alliance with theirs. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they're the ones who are advocating for working visas for women. Um, I think the other issue that Scarlet Alliance are, are very adamant about, which is quite a tricky one, is the whole idea of debt bondage because in our legislation, debt bondage at the moment is indicative of trafficking. Now, Scarlet Alliance would say that, in fact, that would, in fact, not be true, that many women who go into debt bondage to come to work as prostitutes, in fact, are not enslaved, are not trafficked. They, in fact, they're simply, they, they're simply paying a fee to come across and, then and rather than pay it up front, they're paying it off. Mm. Now, that's debt bondage. You know, I, you say it'll cost mm. you 5000 to get into the country, and I'll get you a job. And I say, I don't have that money. And you say, well, you can pay it off when you mm -hmm. get in. That's debt bondage. Now, that does not necessarily indicate that that woman is trafficked. No. But, of course, in the legislation, it would be a clear indication that she had been trafficked. Mm. And I think what also happens in all of this is that the women who move to work um, of their own free will and come into Australia or anywhere, any, any supply country, which I also hate the push-pull stuff in migration mm. studies, you know, destination supply countries, because, again, that takes away decision-making and choices that, that they wouldn't move, you know, for reasons other than desperation and poverty. Um, I think the other problem is when women who know they're being trafficked, um, who, who agree to a fee, etc., and then become exploited, which can happen. So I might say, it's, you might tell me it's a $5,000 fee and you might say, I can pay that off in X number of weeks. And when I get there, in fact, you say, no, the fee's 10000 now and, in fact, it's going to take you six months to pay it off and I want your passport. So I'm now in, I am in a mm. process of there's a trafficking problem now because there has been deceit um, in, in the contract itself. Those women generally don't get picked up in the trafficking legislation okay because because much yeah. of the legislation in many countries actually decreases the penalty so if i know i'm going to be a prostitute or i want to go back to prostitution when that exploitative contract is sorted out you won't be punished as much as if i was an innocent naive virgin who was kidnapped that would be a more inappropriate thing to do so we have also levels of exploitation in the legislation and, of course, what that means to often women who are exploited but don't want to leave the industry will never raise mm. their head and say, or their hand and say, I've been exploited. So what do you think should happen? Well, I think there's a, you know, I mean, I think the easiest thing is to say make prostitution legal mm. in all destination mm. countries. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first thing. And then allow women to identify sex workers and get visas to move. And I think then you would really cut the industry out. It's like anything. You make something mm. illegal. Mm. Think of prohibition in America around alcohol and now drugs. Mm. We end up with a massive... So decriminalisation would help. And then you could... Ha and then what about so-called slavery? Because there are lots of horror stories that we get here in the UK and I used to read in the United States of very young women who were not willing sex workers, mm. allegedly, and were taken from their lives. Yeah. Well, I think, I think once you sort it out, I mean, I think the trouble at the moment is everything gets, everything gets mm. collapsed in together. And I think mm. what happens is I, mm. I, I, there's no doubt there is sex trafficking. So I'm not mm. suggesting it doesn't exist. What I'm suggesting is it's probably 5%, mm. not 95%. So we get told mm. that this is... The, the big problem. No, I, I just don't believe that's the case. Mm, and all of mm -hmm. the, I, I know relying on official statistics in any of these areas is problematic, but if you look at um, the, the um, numbers of official, you know, and think about like in Australia, we put in uh, our own legislation, we have committed $50 million to catching traffickers. We've caught like four, you know. Good grief. You know, so America's done the same. Every... Continent, country, alliance, the EU, African states, Southeast Asia, everyone's put in massive amounts of money and legislation into trafficking since 2000, especially since, since the 21st century. The amount of convictions are low. Now, you could argue that's because they're very sneaky, they pay off governments, it, it's, it's a massive problem, we just can't catch them. Or you could, in fact, think maybe it isn't such a massive problem and a lot of the women who are rescued, and, and this is the other problem, of course, that places like Scarlet Alliance will work in, in Southeast Asia and and you'll have um, Christian organisations will come in and rescue, and I'm putting little inverted commas, mm. or as Gloria would say, bunny ears, 
around um, those words. They come and rescue these women. And the women then escape their rescuers to go to places like Scarlet Alliance and say, you know, they, they've come in, they've taken, we don't know where our friends are, we're really worried for them. This wasn't trafficking, we were all over 18, we consented, you know, this is, a, this is just prostitution. You know, so you've got these sorts of situations mm. happening as well, which don't mm. get reported. And mm. of course, in Congress and in in, a, in the Australian parliamentary debates, all you hear about are the the women found behind bars, blah blah blah. And I'll give you a beautiful example of how to demonstrate this. In Australia, in two thousand and one, a woman called Poon Thong Simapli, who's a Thai sex worker, supposedly, she was discovered on a raid on an illegal illegal brothel in Surrey Hills in Sydney. She identified to the authorities as a, a trafficked victim. She said her story was that she, at the age of 12, had been sold by her Hill Tribe Thai parents into slavery and she found her way to Australia, that she was enslaved, that she'd been enslaved since a 12-year-old. She was immediately um, sent to our one of our lovely detention centres. Simply was a, um, a heroin addict and she was not given the right care and detention, and within four days of that raid, she was dead in the detention centre. Now, in 2003, we had a coronial inquest into her death. The issue came about, and that created a huge uh, in, uh, national coverage, a media national coverage, which basically is credited with moving the government along to put their legislation in place against mm -hmm. trafficking. Okay, mm -hmm. It got the, um, the, the women that were pushing the stories, they got a human rights print media award, you know, all this. Stuff. So it was a big deal. Now, what, of course, happened was, and so that was credited with really motivating the government to get this legislation through. Mm -hmm. We had a child, who, a woman who'd been a child in Sydney, enslaved with bars on the, blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, the trouble was that investigative journalism started to look into this, as did the coroner, and, of course, what they discovered was, in fact, that, in fact, she had not told the truth. She wasn't a trafficked victim. Her parents were not from a hill tribe. She, in fact, was a sex worker. She'd been a sex worker in Thailand. She'd moved to Malaysia. She'd got married. Her marriage had broken up. She'd moved illegally to Australia. She had photos. Her parents had photos of her in Sydney Harbour Bridge, at Blue Mountains, in Perth, which put paid, of course, to her enslavement and imprisonment, which was much made of in the earlier stories. And, of course... The issue, of course, in that is not, you know, why did she lie or what was the true story, but in fact, firstly, that I think she felt compelled to tell a narrative that was meaningful to the rescuers. I think that's a very interesting, that she mm. felt that was the only story she could tell. But also, secondly, that if she told the truth, whatever that is, that would not have motivated the government to put in place the trafficking legislation. The only story that would have done that was the story she told. I've been trafficked by my hill tribe parents at the age of 12. If she told them, oh, I'm a sex worker who's leaving a broken marriage to seek a better life for herself, she would have been immediately arrested and deported. So I think that's a mm. very interesting way of talking about the complexity of this issue and how mm. we've got ourselves into a mindset about trafficking and women and children, well, you know, children especially. And I, and I, I guess I'm moving, the, I'm not talking about children, but I think there's some discussion to be had about when, like when women can consent. Like is it 16, is it 18, is it mm -hmm. 21? I mean, the UN uh, include up to the age of 25 as children in some of their reports around trafficking and with their data gathering, they include up to 25 as if women at 25 can't make decisions. To move, so so I guess that in a very long-winded way, I think that's mm. the answer. I think it's about it's reorienting the debate. Yeah, so De decriminalising. Well, even I mean, decriminalisation has not got much of a foothold in Australia, but legalisation has. Mm. So I think it doesn't really matter whether it's. Mm. I mean, decriminalisation is the preferred, mm. but it, m m many countries won't come at decriminalisation, mm. but they would come at legalisation with different measures around it for as a distinct industry that so may in fact get caught up. Yeah, it gets caught up. It does mm. get caught up with organised crime a bit more and money mm. laundering. So mm -hmm. it possibly mm -hmm. does need different management styles, mm. bit different legislation, different policing mm -hmm. structures mm -hmm. around it. And that works quite well in Queensland. We've had prostitution licensing authority, you know, that deals with applications for brothels. I mean, it does mean a bit like 
you know, we do. It still does mean that you you can't. You know, there's rules about you. So you you end up with all your legal brothels in very industrial areas because they can't mm. be near schools where families gather, playgrounds, ice cream vans, you know, God knows churches. So you do end up with them in in not very nice areas, but nevertheless mm. they're secure, they're safe. You know, you're paying your tax, you're getting your health checks. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I think what you're saying is that. This attempt to prevent the trafficking of women is actually hindering their mobility. Absolutely. Their voluntary ability to be where they want. Yes. And historically, the rise of the city has been a crucial element of migration, but especially female migration, and sex work has been a vital ingredient in that. Absolutely. This goes back hundreds yeah. of years, really, to when there were the great urbanisation experiences in Europe. Oh, yeah, post-slavery. I mean, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. There's there's constant. Mm. And I think, you know, and I think that's really important. And I was going to say something else that was very... Oh, I think the other only other issue to raise here is that, you know, um, it's also got to be acknowledged that, you know, a, a third of the population now are either unemployed or underemployed, the population of the world. They can't sustain mm. a living. And then you have these very wealthy countries like the UK the US, Australia, that create mm. demand for services that really need this group of people to do. So, you know, nannying and, you know, cleaning services that a lot of... Emotional labour. Yes. A lot of the stuff that, you know, so, so you have, you create a, you create a demand mm. <laughs> and you have a supply. Mm. And it's, and also you've got to remember that in many countries now, the gross domestic product is not as great as the money sent back by illegal and legal mm. workers back mm. to the home country. So remittances are very important Very factors. important. And in fact, it, it, it actually then, yeah. you know, means that most governments of those poorest countries where the gross domestic product is overtaken by remittances, mm. as you say, mm. have no desire to stop legal or illegal migration right. and often give out spurious visas and, and there's a whole industry set up to support mm. movement, illegal movement. So... Yeah. You, you know, whenever, whenever you've got a demand in one very wealthy part of the country, you know, the nations, and mm. then very poor nations mm. that could service that demand, well, you know, it's more about the mean spiritedness of migration policy. I think sure. closing the closing of borders, where mm. we want international monetary, we want international and global companies, but we don't want an international migration of, of labour. No, it's of course the thing that capitalism will never accept. No, they want to be able to exploit labour without permitting it to organise itself internationally. Yes, yes. Now, it sounds as though you're in the early-ish stages of this. Is there anywhere people can read your work on it so far? Well, yes. Um, so there's, we've, uh, I've published a book, a couple of books on it. So there's one book came out in 2013 in, with Palgrave Macmillan called The Politics of Sex Trafficking, A Moral Geography. The Politics of Sex Trafficking, A Moral Geography. Yes, so that's wow, with cool. um, uh, co-authors... Erin O'Brien is the lead author, Sharon Hayes and myself. Mm-hmm. And there's another book uh, came out with Routledge in 2012 mm-hmm. called Sex, Crime and Morality, and that's with Sharon Hayes, myself, and Angela Dwyer. And there's a few articles. There's something published in Sexualities in 2012, something in Critical Crim in 2013. So, oh, so you're not in the early stages of it. You've done a huge amount. Huge amount, yeah, but in, in um, around different issues. So, uh-huh. yeah. Wow, congratulations. Amazingly productive. That's just one area of what you do, I know. Well, let's sidestep academia for a moment. I know we're going to talk about death in a moment. I wondered if I could ask you to talk a little bit about your work that you've done outside universities, outside research, and particularly your involvement in Queensland in the what used when we were young there laughably to be called the criminal justice system. Yes, yes, oh fucking yes, no. Yes. But you had some very interesting experiences. I wondered if you would share those with us yeah. to the extent that it is ethical for you yeah, to do so. Yeah, yeah. Well I guess the main one you might be talking about is my I I spent three years a term on the Queensland Parole Board. Mm-hmm. So that so Queensland is a state of Australia, as many of you will know. And uh, has a population of about 4 million, but it's a very, very large state. So it's, as an example, England can fit into Queensland 13 times. Mm. So it's mm. a very big area and, and uh, we have a... And by the way, Belinda is a true daughter of Queensland. Yes. <laughs> so, a Queensland uh, belle. Yes, I one am. One of the Queensland bells. And uh, so I sat on the Queensland Pro Board, which was the Pro Board that was the main 
board for the state. So it, these, there are regional boards that deal with lesser crimes. The Queensland Parole Board dealt with anyone who was uh, serving eight years or more as mm. a concurrent sentence. So mm. they could have had a number of sentences, but their lead sentence had to be eight years. So it wasn't um, an accumulation of eight years, but eight years being the the right. sentence, the lead right. sentence. Right. So so that was the they're, they're the serious end. So they're your armed robbers. Um, your serious paedophiles, um, mm. murderers. I suppose your comical ones. Yes, comical. <laughs> the sort of stand-up routine paedophile <laughs> yes. who would go to a regional board. Yes, that's right. <laughs> See, I, no, I'm, I'm all over this stuff, listeners, <laughs> just in case you thought I was some ignorant interviewer. Yes. Nothing like Ivory it. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so that's right. So the ones that are um, considered to be... Look, I think, you know, whatever you might believe about imprisonment, and, of course, I, I do think we are imprisoning far too many, far too quickly, mm. far, you know, far too easily. Um, but there, are, there is a place for the imprisonment of most of these people, I have to say. Because of their violence. Yes, I think so. Because they are, in fact, a danger to others. Mm. Um, and they have done usually horrific things. I mean, I think talking about what we were just, you know, and as a segue from the discussion about women and sex trafficking, mm. I think what's very interesting in the whole serious offenders issue is mm. that it's the women who become most notorious, even though they are such a small percentage of those offenders. Yes, violent women are just horrendously yes. and regarded, aren't they? It's the same, you know, or, um, women who kill their children. Yes, absolutely. That's right. Whereas, of course, the vast majority of... Domestic violence is done by men. Yes, and of course they also kill all their children much more. And of course, you know, we've got a lot on our minds. <laughs> grief. So it's not think, easy out there. So there was one very famous case um, uh, of a young woman, young woman, very young woman, twelve-year-old girl who was, um, uh, you know, um, coerced, you know, by. The woman into a space where she could then be um, killed by the man, uh, raped and killed. This was a Queensland case. A Queensland right, case. Right. It, it, it would be. It's not. It's in the public domain. It's right. not an issue. Right. Um, the man is um, a notorious um, killer. He's been a, a very difficult inmate to manage and has killed people since he's been inside. So there's no doubt he's a very dangerous person. Mm. Um, he's co-accused to by all accounts, did not actually have anything, as I understand it, as from leaving her fine, mm. have anything mm. to do with the murder, per se, that she lured the child. So you would argue she's as culpable. She lured the child to the place where Barry um, was. Um, she actually got a murder, a full homicide murder, first-degree murder conviction as well. For American listeners, we don't call it first-degree murder, but she got a murder conviction. Um, as well, and I think um, interviewing her because in Australia, in Queensland at that time, a murder conviction got you a life sentence. A life sentence was thirteen years. So after thirteen years, you could begin to apply for parole. Now you may not have been as successful. She wasn't. He never applied. She never was successful. Um, but you can start applying mm. at thirteen years. So that's what a, it now means. Fifteen, I think it's gone up to. So it is getting more difficult to apply but it was there was no there is no non-parole period except if it's specifically stated and I do remember interviewing her a number of times and I think um, what I think was most uh, interesting was that she had no understanding of her notoriety in the community that how you know people would even though she'd by then changed her name etc that she was far much more well known than he was and that she would have actually had a very difficult time out in the community and she had no idea of that. And I think that was a really sad and telling um, issue for me, um, that the, it was much harder for the women, even though the women were often much more rehabilitative, she wasn't mm. really a danger, I don't think, but she would never have probably got out of prison because of that, the, 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 the very big concern about her safety from members of the public, you know, once she was out. Wow. Yeah, it's really sad. Wow. She's since died in prison, which is also very sad. Gosh. Yeah. Really sad. And, of course, you know, we have had, we do have problems with paedophiles getting out that get notoriety and then you know, it's very hard to, to find them somewhere that's safe mm. to live where they mm. won't be hounded and mm -hmm. identified and, you know, people outside their house. And, of course, nobody wants a known sex offender. 
outside living in their community. Mm. I understand mm. that. Mm. But, you know, if you're going to engage with an idea of rehabilitation, um, you know, we've a- I've actually been quite interested in this in a case going on in the UK at the moment, which I feel very ambivalent about. about a, it's, an, it's an English soccer player who's been convicted of rape. Chet Evans. Yes. It is time. And now he's being so he's been convicted. He did time in prison, and now he's got out. And there's been a big. But he hasn't done all this time. He's done his time in prison. Yes. He's still got another year and a half of parole. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. But but yeah. the issue being that he then cannot go and work in his. That we so, I feel quite ambivalent about that. Mm. I understand mm. the mm. rage. Yeah. That maybe it wasn't that mm. he was either not a nice person. Um, that maybe hasn't been punished enough. But if the criminal justice system has said he's done his time mm. and we believe that prison is about rehabilitation, not just incarceration, mm. um, I, and we want our offenders to be reintegrated back into the community, and that's what mm. most of mm. what mm. people in prison and that's what release is all about and parole is all about, yeah. to move them into prison. I do feel quite slightly concerned that... There's been a fuss that he can't actually go back to the job where he could make money. But one of the arguments is that the professions in Britain don't rehire people after convictions for rape. He couldn't be an architect. He couldn't be a doctor. He couldn't be an engineer. He couldn't be a lawyer. Is that true, though? Yeah. Right. Not because of the state, because those professions say, well, I'm sorry, but you've got to go and do something else. Right. Because we don't want you. Right. Uh, And he also hasn't admitted it. So right. he shows no remorse. He's still appealing it. Right. Uh, he claims that he was wrongly convicted. I see. Okay. And the argument is that footballers have become of such stature in the community in this country that they are equivalent in certain ways to the self-legislating sphere of the professions. Right. Where the professions will say, you actually have to have a certain type of character to do this. Right. right. It's a class-based argument. Right that you don't have to have it to be a plumber or a builder, Mm. but now for a footballer, you do. And that's one of the issues that's floating around in terms of this notion of saying, uh, just as most countries do when it comes to things like who can own a a media property, Mm. uh, or as most countries do when it comes to who can own a football club for that Mm. matter. Mm. It's not just a matter of whether you are physically competent or financially so, you actually have to have a certain type of character. Right. That's not uncommon. Mm. This isn't legislated mm. in this case. No, no. Whereas it course, often is. And the legislation would simply say that you shouldn't, you know, for example, you know, if you've got professionals that get done on fraud, you would say they can't go back into an area where they might be managing money. But you wouldn't say they can't work in other professions. So you, that you would, it wouldn't stop them being a doctor if they were, as long as they weren't doing the accounts. There are all kinds of things mm. that allow for that. But when it comes to what, it, what are regarded as egregious crimes of violence, right. these professions in this country basically say, well, actually, no. Right. Okay. Because this isn't a constitutive part of your job at all. But it this is, shows you a bad character. So it it's shows you a bad character. And people put their lives, bodies, businesses in your trust. Mm. And okay. you cannot be trusted. Okay, so that's the backstory. That, that's, that, yeah. that is part of yeah. the backstory. Yeah. And it is therefore, although this isn't being spoken of very overtly, the movement of football into being a middle class activity and the requirement for working class men engaged in it to view themselves right. as professionals. Right, and sort of role models. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So um, I think your ambivalence is, mm. is well taken. The other thing, of course, is that his family have named the victim who is supposed to be protected by law and have run a massive media campaign sending out tweets every day that deriding her. Oh, really? Um, they have so how long ago did the actual offence occur? Two and a half years. Okay. Uh, they have... Um, three years. They have uh, uh, continued to attack her and question her probity. Right. Uh, okay. So there's a lot more going on. Very. In fact, that I'm getting from the media. Well, no. All those things that you, all the, the moral issues that you describe, are very acutely, are certainly there, and they're complex mm. about rehabilitation. It's mm. just that, at least in this country, there's rehabilitation and rehabilitation. Mm. It depends a lot on the crime, and it, rehabilitation is not just about what the state does. It's mm. also about what the profession mm. agrees to. Right. Right. So, for example. Uh, Jessica Ennis, the noted athlete, yes. said that if he were rehired by Sheffield United, she wanted her name taken down of from a stadium or something. one of yeah. their stadia or from a, a, a stand in, in their stadium. 
and uh, she was immediately threatened with rape by thousands of tweets. Mm. Uh, this is um, not a very nice aspect to it. Mm. Uh, similarly, there are chants that Sheffield United fans sing at their home games about him, the offender, the person who's convicted, though, is currently on a, a, a final appeal, uh, which are pro-rape and uh, applaud him, laud him. Right, okay. For what he and is alleged was, to have done, not right, saying he's innocent. Yes. But of course I didn't realise that he hadn't, um, He's he, so he's denying. He's a, Absolutely. So he won't have been rehabilitated. There's no rehabilitation. Because no, you can't access rehabilitation unless you you agree that you have offended. Yeah. So that I didn't realise that. So it is, but oh, it's a complex one. That's very interesting, isn't and it? And these, these songs uh, I've not heard but I've read because uh, they're of a, you, you can look up. Right, the lyrics. The lyrics. <laughs> to learn them, I assume. I I won't be <laughs> singing them as we walk down the streets of York later today. No. So I think it's a very, very, mm, very complex, complex case mm. because like you, I think people, when they've served their time, mm. should be allowed to mm. resume a life. Otherwise, what on earth mm. is this for? Mm. It can't, you can't lock everybody up forever no. because they break the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, it's, but it's a, it's a hot mm. button mm. issue in very this particular so. case. Mm. Very interesting. And of course, it's tying into all of the the abuse that's going on on the internet to women. And, precisely. And, and, precisely, which he is not, of course, responsible no, for. No, no. He's not responsible for the songs that the Sheffield United no. fans, some section of them, sing yeah. in any way. But it talks to a culture. It does talk to a culture, mm. and he's an emblem of that at yeah. the moment. Mm. But he does say he's innocent. Mm. Um, who am I to know? Very tricky, yeah. It is really tricky. Mm. And, and the case involves... I'm sorry, I'm talking much no, too no, much No, it's now, very interesting. So the the it, case involves a woman whose non-consent took the form of passing out from alcohol. Right, right. Yes. So the consent yes. borders are yes. very complicated yes. in such instances, very much so. mm. I think. Mm. Um, I must admit I was glad when Sheffield United told him he couldn't train with them. So but I'm assuming he'll just go and work... He'll leave the country and get a job somewhere else. Is that well, right? I suppose that's possible. There are other clubs that are evincing some interest in him. Mm. UK clubs. UK clubs. Right. Who would they also? But they would also then be subject to the same. You would think lobbying. You would think. Yeah. yeah. You would only escape it by leaving the country. Yeah. 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 So mm. we'll see. Mm. In any event, um, what I wanted to ask you about your experience on the parole board mm. really was this. Did your views change from year one to year three? I think I got more sympathetic. No, I didn't get harder. I think I got. I, I think I got more. Um, I think I got more empathetic. I don't mean that as a like I didn't become a soft touch, but I I thought it was really important that we understood the complexity of their lives and certainly what they'd done post-offence. And I think I became, um, um, I think in a, in a context of an increasing risk-averse government with on that board being government representatives who were often anti-release. So I think I started to become a stronger voice for what I, against what I thought was an, an unfair risk-averse environment mm. in the government. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, I think that if people have, I think you have to see their life post, you know, pre the offence and then you have to look at what they've done since. And I, I, maybe I'm just a Pollyanna, but I did think that if the rules were that, you know, I did this offence and I'd done my time and I'd never done anything wrong in prison and I'd done everything that was asked of me and I'd done every rehabilitation program, etc. and I was applying for parole, I should be allowed, with very strict parole conditions, but nevertheless should be allowed to make amends for that, mm. for that awful offence. And I'm talking about, you know, people that did, I mean, horrendous things, you know, Killed children, killed parents in cold blood. I mean, really, and and you know, and also you know, challenging those psycho psychological diagnoses of psych mm. psychopaths, sociopaths, as if they were inherent, grounded essentialist mm. elements of the self, and trying to actually engage with 
and meeting the person a number of times and, you know, asking questions. I, I just think I became um, more open to uh, giving people an opportunity within very strict confines. I, didn't, mm. I have to say, anyway, everyone we let out, no one re-offended as far as we know. So, you know, we didn't have one of those awful stories that you mm. can hear where you let someone out who's committed a horrendous rape and three days later they, they rape again after serving what seemed to be a reasonable time in prison and doing all of the rehabilitation and talking the talk and, you know, so we never had anything like that happen. I think we were very careful, but we weren't just, they weren't going to be punished for the rest of their life for something they did. And let's face it, most people who murder, murder in their late teens, early 20s. They're normally young men, young working class men. And, you know, who's to say that they shouldn't have another go in their at 30s? 35. Yeah, in their mid-30s at a, at a decent life, you know. Mm. And and so many of them. Of course, in Australia, the law is different to places like America. You can get charged with murder without it being premeditated. So, mm. you know, these can often be grievous bodily harm that results in death. Grievous bodily harm that results in death is murder. It's not manslaughter because you intended to harm them and they die. So often they were pub fights, you know, where there's one, you know, a, a hit where someone falls and they're on the pavement or someone goes in for that last kick to the head as they walk off. And you know, I'm not defending that. I think that's disgusting. But, you know, mm. 15 years later, should they not be allowed back into the community. Well, I started to think, yes, they should be. And I mm. got to know, understand how the programs worked and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And, mm. you know, and, and they're very strictly monitored. I mean, sometimes, you know, if you're worried, you put those little bracelets on them so you know where they can track them now. And, mm. you know, they had to, to sign in every week and they could, there was no alcohol. They were drug tested and, you know, breathalyzed every week. And so there's, you know, you put all these conditions in place. They can't live here. They must live there. They, you know, they have to keep doing this work. You know, whatever you can manage them very closely. And then, and if you've on, a, if you've done a murder and you're on a life sentence, you're on parole for life. Mm. Like you're on parole till you die at ninety two. Mm. Now those parole conditions might change over time, but you're still on parole. You're still monitored. You're still mm. watched. So I think that's a very secure way to, you know, let people move back into this community. And. Cost taxpayers less. Uh, much less, much less. You know, because I'm not one for putting most people in prison, so, you know, I think we should be decommissioning our prisons and mm. putting a lot more people in the community and employing more social workers and parole officers, mm. rather than building more private prisons, which is mm. what we are doing in Australia, as you mm. are doing in America. In fact, often mm. the, mm. it's the same companies building them and also building our detention centres for our asylum seekers. So, you know, it's often the same companies. Well, look, I find when you've got a very good supplier, you stick with them <laughs> personally, heavens above. I mean, little corner store that gives you a nice chocolate bar, why not buy your newspaper there as well? <laughs> now, exactly. in the time left to us, yes. so to speak, yeah. let's talk death. Death. Mm, yes. This is my other area of of, of investigation. It's um, it's probably only interesting if you... Uh, well, no, that's not true. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in coroners more than death, but as a consequence, I get involved in death because coroners, of course, make decisions about death. Coronial queen. You're the yeah. coronial queen, I am, Melinda. I am, I am. So coroners, of course, exist in all, post, all um, English empire countries. Mm. So, of course, America has inherited... You call many of yours medical examiners mm -hmm. because they are doctors, but you still call some of them coroners. It's a state thing. In Australia, we have coroners, New Zealand, Canada, England, Wales, um, Northern Ireland, some um, some European countries. And uh, and I guess the, the interesting thing at the moment is the issue of suicide. So we're very interested in suicide determinations. For those people who don't know, in, our, in the countries I just talked about, including America, um, suicides can only be found by coroners. So it's a coroner that makes a decision whether it's a murder or an accident or a suicide. That, so if it's a violent death, how have they come to that violent and death? When, for those, quite a lot of people are not native English speakers. When you say 
a suicide can only be found by a coroner. What you're referring to is a finding made by a coroner. A legal finding. It is not a matter of physically encountering no. the body as the first discoverer. Okay, correct. Yeah. Yes. Sorry so, if that's yes, obvious to yes. people, but it may not be. So I'm talking about the legal finding, yeah. the legal status, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And, of course, the issue of, that's interesting about that is that it's the legal status that then goes into the statistics. So that goes yeah. to the registry of births, deaths and marriages. Yeah. Then that goes into our statistics. And, of course, as you know, post, you know, governance and Foucault, that those are very important in the ways in which we make decisions. Well, until Michel Foucault, nobody knew that statistics no, mattered, but actually they do. And... <laughs> That's right. Thank <laughs> you, Michelle. <laughs> thanks. thanks to the big man. <laughs> we now know that numbers are quite important in the way governments and corporations right. operate. And, of course, in the issue of suicide, which, of course, is another area that we're very sensitive about as a community, like trafficking. So I, I do, I'm always interested in these politically these politically hot sort of issues. Mm. Um, in, with regard to suicide, of course, we're very interested, we're very concerned about our suicide rates. We see them mm. as, a, as an indicator of the health of the community mm. and we certainly see them as the indicator of the health of specific communities within those larger communities. So mm -hmm. in Australia, I'm assuming it's the same in, in the US, uh, Indigenous people have a very high suicide rate. We see that as a very big indicator mm. of something wrong with that community. Of course, the trouble is that we're not really confident those statistics are very accurate. So, and that's not only in Commonwealth countries or post-English colonies. Um, I don't think there's any any uh, research done that is um, happy with their how the suicide statistics are created. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. of course, that has huge implications for prevention and policy, mm -hmm. where we put our money, who we focus on, etc. So yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Looking, I'm talking. So, I'm, and of course, the issue is. And in all of this, it seems very strange that everyone knows these statistics are bad, they know the coroners make the determinations, but no one's thought to talk to the coroners and say... So that's what you're doing. That's what I'm and doing. And what are they saying to you? They're saying some very interesting things. I mean, previously what we've been arguing in, a, I guess, a Foucauldian sense is that, that coroners, the coronial system is the big... is the um, is the area of government where these two very powerful discourses of law and medicine logheads. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've got the pathologist on the one hand who has the body and does the autopsy, makes a cause of death finding, and you've got the coroner on the other hand who's doing the legal investigation, the police investigation, mm -hmm. all of that. And it's where you they really log heads. It's probably the one place left where these two what Michael Master discourses logheads. So that's what we expected to find, that we have this big debate. Because we've also been interviewing pathologists mm -hmm. as well, just to get their opinions about these sorts of issues. And we thought we'd find that. What in fact we found was something totally unexpected was that the coroners are very concerned about the families. And they don't really give a shit about statistics. Mm. They mm. say to us the important thing about suicide is dealing with the stigma and the shame and for the families. The family's what matters and enabling policy through correct data does not. No. no. In fact, they say that's not even their job. They don't think that's their job. Their job is closure for the families, allowing the families to move on, getting, the, getting it right for the families. Now, that has been... Um, sent shockwaves. <laughs> that's, that's an issue because coroners, actually, their job is statistics. I was going to say, that is absolutely <laughs> shocking. And their qualifications for this yeah, are? Yeah, yeah. well, they're magistrates. So most of them are, are, are judges, lower court judges. Um, and what's also very interesting, I think, is that, you know, if you think about the law and you think about judicial decision-making, it's all about no emotion. It's about impartiality. Mm. So the judiciary has talked always about the importance of impartiality, about objectivity, about neutrality. But of course, coroners are saying the exact opposite. No, it's well, that's so I should backtrack. Not all coroners. There is inconsistency. Some would say it's not it's not my job to help the family with closure. I'm not a counsellor. So some of them, a minority, will still take that view. But the majority are saying, no, my job is therapeutic. My job is to help them through it. I take note of the therapeutic jurisprudence issue that the law should do no harm. And what about the fact that their statutory job is to declare correctly the cause of death? Well, I guess I should also say coroners aren't writing fiction because the issue is, even in the literature, Coronial, uh, suicide, determining a suicide is not always easy. Mm. So there are very mm. clear cases. You know, I've written a note, I've put my affairs in order, I've 
hung myself in my locked house. I've before, but before I've done it, I've rung the police to tell them I'm about to kill my. You know, so you can find very clear cut. There's just no debate suicides, but the trouble is there's a grey, and you can find very clear cut accidents. You know that. So this is what we're trying to find a moral ground somewhere between acts. So they're either accidents, or so they're either murders, they're accidents, or they're homicides. Murders are pretty easy to to identify pretty quickly. Not many of those are not picked up by the coroner. So what you've got is these two lots of violent deaths, which could be accidents or they could be suicides. And it's the difficulty is determining which some are really obviously suicides, some are really obviously accidents. Mm. It's that grey area. In the no, I understood. But I guess what you're telling me is that a key element in their decision making is to try to make it look like it's not suicide. If there is any doubt, any tiny bit of doubt, they will defer to accident, is so, what I'm saying. given the attitudes you've expressed on our two other topics, my guess is that your view is that what we need to get at here is the stigma associated with suicide and I try think, to diminish it so that people are not ashamed. I think I think it is an issue. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I, I haven't, I'm probably, this is probably newer research than the other two. You've only written half a book on That's, this instead oh, no, of no, about, 27. Yeah, about, not a, a few articles there. I've been thinking about it for about 10 years, but it's still... That's not long enough. <laughs> I know more, and I've been thinking about it for at least seven minutes. It's a very tricky... I'm not quite sure about where I sit with this, and I mm. do th my, I do have an opinion. It's not popular with the coroners, and, I've, and in, if anyone knows if you do any research with judicial officers, mm -hmm. maintaining levels of trust with them is quite important. So what I, I'm not saying that I manipulate my research but I'm always very I'm more careful in this area of research because I've built up across a number of countries strong relationships of trust and I don't want to then just go in like a bull at a gate and say stuff so I'm I'm negotiating not negotiating I'm, I'm running ideas past coroners at the moment my idea is that coroners should be allowed to maintain a therapeutic jurisprudence role they should be allowed to use the law in a pro-therapeutic way, but we should remove them from the statistic gap. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. So that's right. But I, there's also a bigger issue right. here about the shame of suicide. Yes, there is. Yeah. This is an appalling problem. Mm, I agree. And that's not their problem. It's not their no. making. It's a wider issue. It's a religious problem yes. and it's a legal it's problem. It's very much a religious issue. And, of, and it's also um, a family problem. Family secrets. And these three are intercalculated. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's incredible guilt. Um, people don't feel guilty about accidents, but they feel guilty about suicide. Mm. I mean, there is an interesting. We've just written a paper about the, a history of the a history of the present idea of suicide to mm. try and look at that issue of history. And of course, if you go back to Roman and Greek, if you go mm. back that far, of course, mm. for Romans it wasn't a stigma at all. It was mm. in fact something that was considered to be an, something appropriate that you might do. You know, the Greeks it was a stigma. But then, of course, the, the, the early Christians took the Roman view. And, in fact, of course, when you think about, you know, when you that you die, you go to heaven and the meek shall inherit the earth and all that sort of stuff. Up until about the 7th century, there was no um, religious proclamation against suicide. In mm. fact, people mm. often became martyrs, you know, and they killed themselves to get to God, to mm. get to heaven. And if life's pretty shitty on earth, why would you not hasten that and get mm. to the, the place of Nirvana? Now, what happened was in about the 7th century, it, there became like a fanaticism around suicide. Mm. More and more people killing themselves in mass suicide, sort of, they were called the Donacastles, I think. And, they, and so there's a lot of writing about this. And it was at that time that the church said, you, suicide does not get you to heaven. Actually, suicide is a sin against God to stop people yeah. from hastening their their ascent yeah. into heaven yeah. Yeah. and so that if we look back so it's very old and of course from that time it was almost like you know you had a, you were, you were buried with criminals at the crossroads where, yeah. where people were hung that's where suicides were buried you had the stake in your heart the stone on your face you know so you couldn't arise from the dead this idea that you were sort of become sort of a zombie a vampire so there's all this sort of stuff and of course remembering that even in like in Australia, the last criminal, it was removed from the criminal statutes in, in 58, 1958. It wasn't removed in UK till 61. There were some states in the US who didn't remove it till 2000. So it's not that long ago. It's in our lifetimes, for most of us, it's certainly our parents' lifetimes, that in fact it was a criminal offence. You know, you couldn't get life insurance. You know, you could have paid into a life insurance plan for 50 years. You kill yourself. It used to be that wouldn't 
void, null and void a life insurance policy or a death cover. So, you know, it, ha it has a very recent stigmatising mm. history. Mm. I don't know how... I think it will take a while to... And I think, you know, people are angry. When, when, when you have a loved one kill yourself, I mean, the anger is a very common emotion. I, I, you know, that's, it's, it's, a, it's seen as like a coward's way out. Sure. How, how dare you leave me with this? How dare you, 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 you opt out of this difficult situation and leave me to manage it? I mean, they're the sorts of things that you hear families say. Mm -hmm. And, of course, often... There are secrets that come out because of the suicide. So people often do suicides right. because they're already ashamed about something. And it's when they suicide, they're back, like, you know, they're having an affair. They're about to be charged with sex crimes. So people often have a trigger yeah. that is the shaming event anyway. So not only if then if you, you're dealing with the suicide, but the shame, that the, the secret they're trying to hide comes out mm. because they've suicided. Mm. So... It's a really, it's very complicated. And, sure. you know, of course, in our society in Australia, we've got an incredibly high Indigenous suicide rate. So that's a whole other issue about the effects of colonisation and dispossession and, you know, alienation and mm. those sorts of things. So that's a whole different reason. It's a community problem as opposed to, you know, why are young men killing themselves, for example, or old men. In fact, old men are the group most likely to kill themselves now. So that's a sad thing in itself, and you know, you know, there's issues of euthanasia and all this sort of stuff that then gets put on the table around the increasing mm -hmm. number of elderly men, especially who now are killing themselves, and that that to me is the saddest thing of suicide. I mean, there are, you know, regularly you would come across files, in, and it's about a, an old man or woman who's killed themselves, and they've killed themselves because they're dying or they're they've lost their license or. You know, they've been being forced to move into a nursing home or whatever, and they can't, you know, we don't allow them to euthanize, so they are forced on their own, you know, to, in fact, take their own life. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very sad. You know, loss of autonomy, loss of self-respect. And also not respecting that as a society, that, in fact, I am able at some point, again, the decision-making, that I should be allowed to make a decision yeah. about when I die and that, you know, that I'm not allowed to do that. I think that... Like I, there's, a, there's some terribly tragic stories. Like there was a lovely one story that always is in my mind is this old fellow who's 90-odd, just lost his licence, lives on his own, but he's, you know, the licence is gone, mm. they won't renew it, he's lost his mobility, now they're talking about packing up the home, putting him in a home. So he, And he has a lovely relationship with the kid across the road who every afternoon comes over and they I don't know, play cards or whatever they do together. So he decides he's going to kill himself. He rings the police. And he says, I'm just about to shoot myself, which is what men do. Old men generally use shooting rather than hanging because, of course, hanging has connotations of capital punishment. So they tend to shoot, whereas now men, men our age and younger, since capital punishment has been disallowed, do hang themselves more. Of course, in America, they shoot themselves more. So quite an interesting decision there about what, to, how, what method to use. So he, he said, I'm going to shoot myself. So he rings the local police. I'm going to shoot myself. I'm telling you because I don't want the young lad across the road who would be inevitably would find me. I want you to go to him and say, you can't go and see Dan or whatever. So, of course, he rings them. The police get on, hear it. They race over. It takes them 50 minutes to get there. He's already dead. He's under his favourite apple tree. He's got the rifle, shot himself in the head. But the fact that he had to do that on his own, I just that just seems so poignantly sad to me that, you know, we don't do more about euthanasia in that sort of context, mm. that he couldn't have had mm. that, you know, his loved ones around him. Or, you know, the woman who recently, you know, came up in the files and she was an elderly woman, she was not very well, nursing home was pending, she'd stored up all the drugs, she did everything, packed, got all the wheels out so everyone knew all the details, um, cleaned out the fridge, you know, put the dogs in the kennels, all this, locked everything up, put a good dress on, beautiful, made the bed, took all the Nembutal that she'd been storing or got from overseas, died on her own, no one around her. No. I just think that's just so mm. sad. There's something also there about social solidarity and the lack of it mm. too, the isolation, I think, that is a factor that needs to be discussed, the failure to include elders mm. in ordinary social mm. activities mm. and of course the end of traditional life 
and the triumph of modern urban life and pharmaceutical mm. care. Mm. Yes, prolonging life. That putting well. these things together mm. produces anime at the same time as it produces longevity. Mm. Yes. And that the mixture of this industrialised and yet atomized body leaves us with a whole series of dilemmas that have never been thought about mm. adequately and mm. certainly not addressed mm. in policy terms. Absolutely. Well, it's been a great uptime being with you. Thank <laughs> yes, sorry. Fuck you very much. <laughs> Because I can't think Welcome of a, to my life. I, I can't think of a better Saturday morning. <laughs> yes. Really, here we are. We're about to go off and have some breakfast yes. together, yeah. and then go on a tour of the world city. But Belinda, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I just feel as though this has been the most fascinating conversation thank for you. me. And the three men and a dog in <laughs> Sweden who are going to listen to it um, right. under the apple tree with the rifle half cocked. One hopes will reach out. Yes, because. I think the the lesson that I take away from the three areas mm. you've spoken about is the need, more than anything almost, to listen mm. and to judge after listening. Mm. I think that is a really good you know, moral position to take. And empathy. Right. You know, and, well, you can't listen properly without empathy, mm. I suspect, mm. and mm. vice versa. Yes. I hope that when you've finished your coronial work, you'll leap back into the pod Mm, okay. And share some more intelligence. Well, yes, we have another grant, so we'll start another project next year and be interesting to see what we find. Fantastic. Thank you so much.